Welcome to The Road to VA Compensation Benefits, a podcast by Hill and Ponton. Join us as we interview experienced VA attorneys and get practical tips on your VA claims. Hey there, this is Matthew Hill from Hill and Ponton for another live session. Thanks so much for coming. I'm hoping to be able to answer as many questions as I can. As most of y'all probably know, we're a law firm that represents disabled veterans for their appeals. We are so overwhelmed, but that's who want our help. And we're fortunate to be in a position where we can help some vets, but we cannot help them all. And so this is kind of a way that I like to see there's people I can help along the way. So let's get started. What is the percentage dollars for your services? Is it based on the increase or determined length of time? What is the average time required to get the increase? Thank you, Z. Okay, so you're talking about what is the percentage we charge as attorneys. So we charge what's called a contingency fee, meaning we don't get any benefits unless we win. Frankly, with most cases, we actually have to get an outside medical exam that we pay for up front. And if we don't win, we actually eat that cost as well. Our percentage is 30% of whatever the retro amount is. It's based on the increase. So whatever the, the first retro that comes in, not the ongoing monthly benefits, we get a percentage of that. As far as timeframes, as you might know, VA has changed their appeal process, frankly, for the first time since the 80s, I guess I'd say. Anybody who tells you how long it's going to take to get VA benefits right now, I would be really wary of taking that because the VA doesn't even really know what their times are right now. Everything has changed. I tracked ours and from when we would get a case after a decision to when we got a decision was typically about 27 months. Now what I'm seeing is that vets are getting decisions quicker, but they're almost all denials. And so the VA can go to Congress and say, look, we're issuing decisions left and right. This is so much faster than our prior system. You know, we're doing a great job. The job I've seen is shoddy. What they're doing is they're sending out decisions quickly. They're not thorough. Even when they grant benefits, they're not the correct amount. And the effective date is wrong. So time to decision is a lot shorter. It's probably measured in months, but it's time to correct decision. I'm still seeing it take years. So that's what we see. And there might be other people saying different things, but that's what we see here. I already have proof I have hearing problems and was giving hearing aids by the VA due to a tank blast at the NTC. Tomorrow, I have a compensation exam in El Paso, Texas. What should I expect? Any advice? The hearing test they use is the Maryland hearing test, which is this antiquated test that, frankly, the majority of audiologists do not use anymore. I have been extremely frustrated over my career when it comes to hearing cases because they have this test that I don't have access to. I can't administer my veterans. You know, I talked to the doctor, said, hey, can you do this? And like, look, we don't even have the equipment to do that because people stopped doing that as a standard of care years, if not decades ago. So what I'd recommend is you make sure you talk to him. It might even be worth writing this down and giving to him a statement saying what the effects of this hearing loss has. You know, can you hear loud things? Can you hear high things? Can you hear low voices? Because those are the kind of things that they should know and they should record. Can you hear well in a group of people? Can you hear across the room? That's the actual daily living. You got to take the test. I've seen a lot of tests that came back that I think underrate the veteran, but if you at least get your statement in there, hopefully the doctor can reconcile the statement if the test does not actually show what's going on with you. I submitted an adequate report for my private doc, but VA scheduled a CMP exam anyway. I refused to go. Claim was denied and I appealed to the BVA. Could BVA issue an award without CMP? Yes, it could. As far as refusing to go to a CMP exam, the VA can use that as an automatic denial in your case. They have the law behind them. They're allowed to do that. You need to explain to the BBA, here is my exam. 
I believe this is adequate and say why, you know, it does it connect something to service? Does it show the increased rating you have? You need to go the extra step and say why you believe it's adequate. BVA still can deny you on that. So it's just important that you take that extra step. As frustrating as it is, they have a duty to assist you to win. I call it the duty to sabotage. What they did is they sabotaged you there. It looks like you gave them adequate evidence to win your case, but they just came back and said, this is nice. We're going to get our doctor to look at it. Just kind of as an aside, what I do, if I know the VA is going to get an exam, I'll try to let them get their exam first. And then I have my doctor not only give the opinion that I think is adequate to show why something's service connected, but I also have the doctor critique what the CMP examiner said. So if you still have this doctor who's willing to get a bat for you, I think you have the medical evidence you need from what you're saying. You just need to write and say why this shows validly portrays what you're going through. Could a dentist do a BBQ to rate headache disabilities secondary to teeth clenching? To rate, I don't know, but to service connect, yes. They could say that teeth can cause migraines and cause tension headaches, but to rate it, you probably need a, a medical doctor, not a VDS. Filed higher level review for claustrophobia, VA found duty to assist error, and three Fs, in-service event, diagnosis, and nexus. But nexus was to another stressor. VA is asking for lay statements to be certified ASAP. Is service connection next? So it sounds like they found the favorable findings of in-service event, diagnosis, and nexus. If they found an in-service event that was a stressor, the nexus, I guess what they would have to do, certifying that this event they found was actually the stressor that caused it. So it seems to me like they would do another CMP exam on that. But as far as lay statements, I would get one, you know, obviously you need to write one about that new stressor that they've conceded and anybody else who was there, anybody else who saw you before and after, anybody else can tell the VA what was involved with that stressor. So I would do more than one statement. Could chiropractors and acupuncturists legally do BBQs? How about nexus statements? I have found that the VA routinely denies these with the chiropractor in particular and acupuncturists as well. I would never hire a chiropractor to give me a nexus opinion. VA will just shoot that down. As far as rating though, the ratings for orthopedic problems are done on, frankly, a range of motion is typically what all of them are. A chiropractor is certified to do that. A chiropractor can say, here's how far he can bend without pain, or here's where the pain starts. So I would argue that you could use a chiropractor for range of motion for a rating, but I've never seen the VA accept a chiropractor for a nexus. I'm not saying that hasn't happened, but it's just when I've had vets use that before, the VA just shoots it down out of hand. Says, oh, nope, that's not a medical doctor, but for a range of motion, I believe that they are. Can VA combine asthma with sleep apnea? When the claim was filed for sleep apnea secondary to asthma, all were service-connected. So you should get a rating for each one of those. Anything that's secondarily service-connected, unless it's a 0% rating, you should get a rating for each one of those. Like a sinus, I see a lot of sinuses that are 0%. Sometimes asthma is as well. But if the severity of the disability meets a rating, then it should be separately rated from the underlying disability. Can you file a claim for autoimmune disease secondary to cirrhosis also considered autoimmune? Yes, you can. Unfortunately, autoimmune diseases cause all kinds of diseases in your body, which also include autoimmune diseases. So as long as the symptoms of that second disease are distinct, separate from the first, then it's not about filing the claim, it's about getting more compensation, then you can be compensated for that. Service connected at 10% for PFB. Can a licensed barber write a buddy statement as to my condition over the years? He's been my barber 15 years. He can write a lay statement. 
saying, look, this is what I've noticed on the space. He can say, I've been a barber for 15 years and I've seen this across different individuals whom I've cut their hair or worked with. There's an argument there that his statement could be adequate to give the VA what it needs for either a rating or possibly a nexus. They're going to fight you on that though. That's the kind of case, unfortunately, I think you'd have to take to court for them to discuss competent evidence and does it have to be a doctor. My whole thing is, do you want to make new law or do you want to get the benefits you deserve? Because sometimes those are distinct roads. Sometimes if you can get you know, an opinion from a doctor or in this case, a PA or a nurse practitioner, I would go for that. But I like what you're saying. I'd get a statement from the barber because that would lay the foundation for anything that's given to you as far as a medical opinion. Have you ever seen a case that links a lower back injury to a lumbar formal stenosis, narrowing of the foreman where the nerves go through? Yes. I mean, so you're talking about a lower back injury that happened in service, and then currently you're dealing with that stenosis. Stenosis can be a hereditary problem. And so the VA might come back and say, this is not related to service, this is related to your genes. Even in that case, if the lumbar trauma in service were worse enough, it could accelerate that. You know, it could pinch that even further. So there is a possibility there, but you're going to need to find a doctor that will sit down, take a look at what happened in service, look at what's going on now and talk about why they're related. And they have to talk about things like, is there a family history of this? And even if there is, why this trauma either quickened it or actually, you know, helped induce it. So yes, you can, you need a good ortho surgeon to uh, look at that, but it is a case you should prosecute, you should go after because you can win. It's not an easy case though. When it comes to being TDIU, in your experience, have you ever heard or had anyone who had a rental property while being TDIU potentially making higher than poverty threshold, but passively? You hit the nail on the head, passively. There are a lot of holes on how you can earn income with TDIU. But the one you're impressing upon us, and I think it's important that everybody understand this, is that if you have rental properties, if you had stocks, if you had an annuity, if you have something that's sending in income to you, but you're not daily working for that, a rental property you could daily be working for if you had to go put in new drywall, put in new appliances, you know, put in a new counter, and you're doing all that work, that's something where the VA might take a look at. But if you're just sitting there collecting a check and every once in a while you're helping replace a tenant or something and doing light work, light maintenance, no, that's, as you said, passive income. That does not count towards your threshold of poverty level. Could the VA come after you if that's your next question? Sure, they do. They screw this up all the time. But at that point, you need to write a lay statement saying, this is where the money's coming from. This is what I do on a daily basis to maintain it. This is not something I'm actively working at. If after HLR, higher level review, the DRO sends it back for additional evidence and or examinations, can you submit additional evidence before they make a final decision? This is a massive point of argument we have had with the VA, and I belong to an organization called NOVA, where we've actually pressed the VA leadership on this. So backing up, when you file a claim, it's called a supplemental claim. In that claim, you can submit whatever you want, and the VA has to consider it. Once that claim is decided, you've got three options. One, you can file another supplemental claim, submit more evidence, and, and do it again. Your effective date is preserved, meaning the date you originally filed is preserved. So that first claim is when you would get benefits from. Two, you can file a higher level review. And then three, you can go to the Board of Veterans Appeals. We'll, we'll leave the Board of Veterans Appeals aside for a moment because they have their own three lanes. But when you file that higher level review, you cannot put in any more evidence. It's a closed file. They decided on that record. 
The question then becomes where they say, well, look, the guy who made this decision before me screwed up. They didn't get an exam. They didn't go get these records from the National Archive. So when they do that, then it goes back to the supplemental claim. We have tried to submit evidence at that point saying, look, it's back to the supplemental claim. This is where you can submit evidence. And they reject it. They said, no, this is part of the higher level review. You can't submit any evidence now. The regulations and the statutes do not speak to that, meaning they don't say that you can't submit evidence once it goes back. But that's how the VA is playing it right now. So can you? You should be able to. But are they allowing you? No. So in a way, it's frustrating. You almost got to let them develop their claim, make their decision, and then you decide, are you going to do a supplemental claim or are you going to go to the board? Because at that point, they're also saying you can't go back to higher level review. Never had a CMP, but was told I had one. I can prove I was working that day as a first responder. I'd send in that information saying I was working that day. The question is going to be, were you alerted to the fact that you had a CMP exam? Because if you're alerted to the fact and you didn't ask to reschedule, the VA might say, we don't care that you're working. You know, you need to address both. Did they tell you? And I know I didn't have an exam this day because I was working and that should be pretty easy to show between paycheck and then also uh, in your bosses. So yeah, I would definitely push that. The BVA today sent me a letter, decision granting my TDIU. How long before I see a deposit in my account? Congratulations. If you went to the board, you fought far, fought well. Good for you. I'm glad you got your benefits. So what happens is the board says, we grant you these benefits. In this case, it's TDIU. And then the case goes back to the regional office and they have to implement the decision. I've seen decisions take up to two months to be implemented. I would say after two weeks, if you don't get a response, if you have a veteran service officer, or I think there's like a telephone line at the BVA, I would start calling them saying, hey, where is this? Because here's the thing, with TDIU or any complete grant that you get for a disability, say you got migraines, you know, for example, at 50%, it's not TDIU, but that's the max rating. The regional office does not have to do any development of evidence. They don't have to go get an exam. They don't have to get records. It's right there. It's done. All they literally have to do is issue decision. Now, one thing that can hold this up, if a veteran gets a retro that's over, I believe, $25,000, there has to be three signatures at the RO. Okay. So usually, let's say you get a $10,000 retro, the VA is going to come back and just one person has to sign it, boom, it goes out. But if it's over $25,000, three different people in the VA have to sign it. I have found that that adds a time typically because you usually get the person who's writing the decision, that person's boss, and then some random person in the RO. So that can cause a play. But bigger point is, hey, you're getting the benefits you deserve. Congratulations. I know you must have had a long fight. It took you up to the board. And I hope that after this, you get to move on with your life and live and not deal with the VA. How can I get compensated for PTSD that wasn't recognized at the time of my discharge? PTSD is an insidious disease. It's something that can kind of stay hidden inside people, or it can be out and about, but the person doesn't recognize it. Most of our veterans are Vietnam vets. I'll go back and look, and some of them had trouble ever since they were discharged, but others led a life that seemed normal to everybody else, and then they retired and things just fell apart. The delayed onset is quite common. And so, you know, you would need a doctor to look at whatever happened in service, the trauma you went through, what's going on now, and put a link between them. But the delayed onset is fortunately quite common to see that. What would happen if you get 100% PNT and TDIU about the same time? What would the VA go with? All right, so this is an interesting question. Where I see this a lot, so that has 70% for PTSD, he has 40% for his back, and then 20% for one leg radiculopathy and 20% for the other, and then maybe migraines on the top, and all those combined to 100%. Well, that's 100% and you get paid 100%. But if one of those disabilities causes the vet 
not to be able to work, then the vet would be eligible for IU. And why that's important here is that the other disabilities combine to 60%. And if you have one disability causing 100% or IU, and you have another 60 combined, then you're eligible for a special monthly compensation. They call it SMCS. And that's another three to $400. So if you can prove that your unemployability is due to one disability, and you have another several that combine to 60, then you can get more benefits. I mentioned anxiety and excessive worry on my discharge exam many years ago. Absent a current diagnosis, can I pursue this as it persists? No. You have to have a current diagnosis. The irony is you don't have to have a diagnosis in service, but to be compensated, you have to have a diagnosis right now. So like I get a bunch of folks will come to me and says, I have exposed to asbestos. I say, okay, well, what problems do you have? Do you have any lung problems or do you have breathing problems? And they'll say, no, they'll say I was exposed or they'll say I was exposed to Agent Orange. And I'll say, okay, well, do you have diabetes or heart condition? And they'll say, no, the problem in service alone is not enough. You know, the fact that you're still suffering from anxiety to me says you need to go see a doctor. Anxiety just doesn't exist in a vacuum. There's a rating you should have for that. There's a diagnosis that you should have, whether it's anxiety or depression or some other mental health condition. If that persists, then you need to get current diagnosis. And then it sounds like you're on your way to having a claim. In your opinion, how complicated are vertigo claims as they are similar to migraines at 80%? Vertigo claims, they're easier if you're already service-connected for like hearing loss or even tinnitus. Typically, what we try to show is some kind of trauma to the eardrum. And once we've done that, then we show the physical manifestations currently and hopefully have a diagnosis of vertigo and then show that this is related to the other. If you go online, there is a list of military occupational specialties that the VA will automatically presume the veteran was exposed to loud noises and probably had acoustic hearing trauma. So I would look for that because the VA, they wrote it but they forget they wrote it and they still deny that's on this. So I'd look for something like that and see then if you could connect the vertigo from there. How do I know that VA included bilateral calculation on my ratings? Can you explain how the bilateral is calculated? Basically what they do is they take the two, 10% and 10% are actually combined to 19. And then they take another 10% of that, which is 1.9. And they put those together. The more significant it gets, you know, 2020 on your legs, they combined all the bilaterals together and that small percentage starts to add up. The closer you get to 100%, it actually helps you get to 100%. So I'd recommend looking at our calculator, spend a long time programming it, but it'll show you everything. How do you know the VA did it? Do that first, see if you come with a different number. And then if you ask for what's called the code sheet, I think you actually have to write away for this. It should be attached to your rating decision, but the VA doesn't like giving it to vets. It'll show you everything you're rated for, everything you've been denied for, and it'll show you other things like bilateral factor, what the actual percentage is, TDIU, permanent total, all that stuff. So that's how you would know if they did it, or at least they said they did it. Our calculator gives you an option to figure out, is the math correct? Injured back in service, separated in 14, CMP in 15, doctor says no injury, degenerative issues, pain continued constantly until I injured it again in 2019, lead spinal fusion. Can I still connect it? Yes. That was a bad CMP exam you had in 2015. You need to get another doctor to go back and say, whatever happened in service, weakened your back. And frankly, that probably is what led to the accident in 2019 and that your back was already in a compromised position. So yes, you can get it service connected. You're absolutely going to have to have an orthopedic doc look at it and say, this is how these things progress. If you get an injury, it heals one day later, and it's probably not going to last. But if you get an injury and it lasts, my understanding, orthopedic back injury in particular, it lasts over three months, that's going to have some chronic effect on you and on your back. VA didn't get my diagnosis for urinary urgency. I got a new medical evidence that links it to my degenerative disc disease. Should I do a supplemental claim while I'm still on active duty or when I get out? You're not going to get paid until you get out, but 
doing one now, I would do it now so that you get paid more quickly so that you get out. Hopefully they get it right before you get out, you get out, boom, you're getting the correct percentage you should. I managed to get my TDIU with SMC. How far back can the effective date be pushed back? I mean, the absolute farthest back would be the first day you applied, but it can be pushed back under this new system when you first filed that supplemental appeal. There are still ways to go back farther than that. If you filed before 2019, you can look and see were there decisions before that in 2019 that had evidence submitted within that. So let's say you had a 2017 decision and then two or three months later, you submitted more evidence on the issue. Well, the VA has to make a decision on that new evidence. And if they haven't, then that's still open. But effective dates get incredibly intricate, complicated. But it should go back at least to the date under this new system that you first applied. Okay, supplemental claim, denied, higher level review, denied, supplemental claim, granted. Well, it's not that second supplemental claim, it's the first one. If you have an IMO stating you have PTSD and proven stressor, how can a CMP examiner come to a different conclusion? I get uh, frustrated with that all the time. You can ask for another exam. If you have an IMO, hopefully you have a doctor who's willing to go to batch for you more than once. And I would ask that doc to write an addendum to his. And first thing I would do is request the actual exam. It's just a DBQ disability questionnaire that the VA doc filled out. I'd ask for a copy of that. And I'd ask your doctor to say, comment on this. What do you agree? What do you disagree with? found that very effective in the past, but I get really frustrated when they do stuff like that. Decision letter reads, while your service treatment records reflect complaints, treatment, or similar diagnosis to the similar what was claimed, the medical evidence supports the conclusion that a persistent disability was not present in service. Three years later, they said disability was not diagnosed by the VA, even though you have sought multiple treatments. Two years after that, they said the same thing. They didn't bother sending me another CMP for my back. What are my options? Getting an outside exam is probably the best thing. The next best is writing a letter saying, this is what happened in service. This is how my back felt ever since. It never got better. It never stopped hurting. It got worse sometimes. It got a little better sometimes, but it never stopped. And that's what you want to say. That's what they're going at with the persistent disability. So if you have that, that's what I would write. I am service connected with Crohn's for 30%. Can I get chronic pain claim secondary to Crohn's? I've suffered from abdominal pain from disease for a lifetime. You absolutely can. You might want to tweak this a little bit and say not only chronic pain, but also if you have any depression, which even if you don't think you have it, I'd ask those around you. Something like Crohn's can just devastating, change your whole life, sometimes even destroy the image you have of yourself. The pain and depression or mental health condition can be one and the same. And since those would be a different set of symptoms, then at that point, I think you can show the VA, look, this is what's going on. And the irony is, especially if it's under a mental health condition, that is probably going to be rated higher than the Crohn's. I see that all the time where I'll have a vet with a back pain at 20% and we'll talk and realize he's seriously depressed. And all of a sudden he's got a separate rating of 50%, sometimes even 70% for the depression. So definitely file that, Daniel. Thank you all so much for coming today. That wraps it up. Until next time, I look forward to seeing you all and looking at your questions again. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to The Road to VA Compensation Benefits, a podcast by Hill and Ponton. If you would like help with your VA claim or want more veterans disability content, please visit our website, www.hillandponton.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media, facebook.com slash hillandponton, as well as youtube.com slash hillandponton.com.